Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD, pro-natural physique athlete, back with another episode on Swole Radio. We got Dr. Mike Gizertel back in the house today for round two of our talk on advanced exercise training tips. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thanks for having me back. Hey, so last time we talked about leg training and we got a lot of great feedback on this. And today we're going to be digging deep into upper body training and giving you guys some advanced hypertrophy tips so you know just couching conversation this is for those really serious people who have been training hard for a few years and really want to take their gains to the next level so yeah i was thinking we could just jump right into this got some limited time here just starting off with chest training mike some of your tips yes excellent all right let's just get right into it and feel free to interrupt me at any time when i begin ranting out of control rants are great Oh, stop. All right. So, um, chest training. The thing about chest training is there's a really cool tip from powerlifting that we can pick up that really, really changes the game. And the tip is sort of twofold, maybe threefold if you think about it in a more complex way. But all these things reinforce each other. So, anytime, especially during presses, if you want to get to stimulating your chest more and to feeling your chest more, which is actually a quite common complaint. People will say, I'm doing my pressing, but my triceps seem to be the ones receiving the stimulus. My front delts seem to be the ones receiving the stimulus. Mm. I just have trouble hitting my chest. And interestingly enough, it's the folks without the really good chest genetics that seem to have that problem. It seems to be almost a universal thing that if a muscle has pretty good genetics for growth, it seems to, I hate to use this colloquial term, but take over. And exercises at the very least more technically it seems to be very well exposed to getting a stimulus and just kind of like the very same people that don't have chest genetics that are that great end up having a, a, a tough time connecting with their chest and making sure their chest receives the stimulus so here's the tip from powerlifters it's you almost start to set up uh, every press like a powerlifter sets up their com competition bench not quite but close so what you're going to do is you're gonna do three things. You're gonna retract your shoulder blades behind you. You're going to arch your back slightly. You don't have to arch it a lot. And then as the implement, be it barbell, be it machine, be it dumbbells, descend, what you wanna do is reach up and out, lifting your chest towards the implement as the implement descends. So as the implement comes down, you almost reach your chest out to touch it. And if it's dumbbells, of course you go outside in your chest and below if it's a pain you go outside below and if it's a barbell you reach up and touch just to wherever you're touching on you know nipple line is a very good uh, point to touch why these things because so powerlifters do this to shorten the range of motion which you could be like okay that's exactly what we want which is true but they also do it to keep the shoulders safe by tucking the shoulders away it probably reduces the risk of having hurt shoulders the thing is shoulder pain and shoulder injury complaints and powerlifting is actually quite rare, but in something like American football or any other high school sport you use bench presses in, shoulder complaints in bench pressing are actually quite common. Mm. And you think, what are they doing that the powerlifters aren't? And what they're doing is they're leaving their shoulder, their glenohumeral joints and scapulae out in front. And that leverages a lot of load in there and ends up transducing a lot of force to the glenohumeral joint. But if you take your scapulae and you retract them back, it actually makes the lift less of a delt movement, seemingly, and more of a chest movement, which is great because it exposes your chest. The other thing it does is it pre-stretches your chest. If you take your shoulders and move them back, you're automatically pre-stretching your chest. And once you pre-stretch your chest, even though the range of motion has been reduced, it's been reduced at the top part of the press up here, where it doesn't really much matter what you do because the top part of pressing isn't really a chest-focused movement. Anyway, that's a little bit more triceps, typically. So what you're doing is you're converting the chest into, uh, sorry, they're converting all presses that you do by arching, retracting, and lifting your chest up into movements that bias more of that bottom half of the range of motion for the chest, which as some recent research has shown and some theory and older animal research has shown, tension applied at a stretch seems to induce more hypertrophy. And what it also does in this case is it allows you to connect with your chest much more, to feel that deep tension, and feel that stretch and it seems to work really really well to get people from a place where their presses hit their chest for sure but it's also feeling a lot of triceps and front delts 
to a place where you do one set like that properly and you're like, holy shit, my chest was getting ready to blow up at the bottom. This is amazing, amazing pumps, amazing tension, promotes a lot of soreness, which are all signs that we're probably on the right track and getting a good stimulus. So anytime I work with folks in person and they show me some presses that they're doing and they say the chest activation seems to be somewhat leaving something to be desired, I teach them to retract, to arch, and to expose the chest, lifting the chest towards the implement as the implement descends. That seems to do a lot of really good stuff. It pre-stretches the chest, so at the very bottom of the range of motion, the chest gets hit like crazy. So that's a really, really big tip for mm -hmm. chest uh, stimulus. A, a related one is in that setup. If you could manage to find some dumbbells, if you're really leprechaun type luck, you can get a camber bar. But you can also do this with deficit push-ups where you put your, your hands on some kind of platforms. And if you can descend below the level of your chest, the problem with barbell movements is they end right at your chest. But mm -hmm. some people, maybe dare I say most, are flexible enough that a lot of chest stretch under load can occur below that chest line. And if you arch your track, that chest line actually gets hit really quick. So if you have dumbbells or if you have a machine press or if you do some deficit push-ups with maybe some a partner uh, puts some load on, on your back, you can get into this ultra deep position and pause and then come back up. I mean, that messes up the chest like nothing else. And I tend to think that that sort of approach to chest training can take pretty much any chest exercise and make it way more stimulative for, for the packs themselves. Yeah, wow. There's a lot to unpack there. Those are great points about you know how I think one of the advantages of something like a barbell movement or like a bench press for a beginner lifter is it's very easy for them to conceptualize kind of, you know, taking the bar from point A to point B. It's a standardized range of motion. You touch your chest, you go all the way up. But as you get to this next level, you realize that there are a lot more layers to the technique that you can still make very fine adjustments to subtly change, you know, the range of motion angles and the you know, force tension curves. 100%. And a lot of this is where the mind-muscle connection comes into play because the folks, there's an element, and, and this is not a, necessarily a bad thing, it's, it's a little bad when taken to the extremes. There's an element of people in bodybuilding who are trying to front the idea that keeping it simple is usually better, and it's usually better, but not always. And to people that are over-obsessing about minutia and technique and the mind-muscle connection, they'll say, listen, just go from point A to point B and get stronger. And that's a very good point. But for people who seem to have problems feeling their chest and whose triceps and front delts seem to get most of the stimulus from pressing, these minor adjustments can illustrate that the mind-muscle connection, which at RP at least we identify as feeling a profound degree of tension in the muscle and or profound burn in the muscle for higher reps, that mind-muscle connection really starts to be something you can feel then you get more sore, then you see more growth, and you're like, oh, wow, okay, there really is something to this. So that modification of technique, I think, pays really big dividends. In addition to that, you know, I didn't cover any sort of fly movements. The mm -hmm. one thing I will say, and it, it, this may be mistaken and this may be controversial, but a lot of people really can concern themselves with the crossover portion of the fly, and mm -hmm. a lot of people concern themselves with maybe pausing at the top, and there's nothing wrong with that, it flies, um, or touching the dumbbells together or in choosing even machine flies versus dumbbell flies because they'll say in dumbbell flies, you know, you're not fighting gravity in the last portion, but in machine flies, you are. What I have noticed, and this is in, in accordance with the literature, uh, that the bottom part of the press, getting through that nasty stretch, seems to just be more stimulative than concerning yourself with the top part. And I, I've, I've done years and years of experimenting on myself and clients and friends, unwilling friends of, you know, does the crossover part of the cable crossover, does the peak hold of the machine, um, machine fly, does that make a big difference? And other than just an interesting variation to play around with, I just haven't noticed it paying big dividends. What I have noticed is focusing on the fly when you're at the bottom of the fly, really opening up your chest, really retracting your scapulae, really letting the tension through put get really nasty. That's where I've noticed the biggest gains. So, cause a lot of people will ask the question, this is a good question of, should I be focused on peak contraction? And I know like, you know, Joe Weider loved the peak contraction idea. Mm -hmm. There may be muscles for which that is appropriate. And I, some back muscles, I think there's something to it, 
but for the chest, some people swear by it. I just haven't found it to be super effective. And to the extent my that my informal observations are valuable to people, I would say maybe if you've had trouble growing your chest, stimulating it, I wouldn't worry so much about that peak contraction and about getting that uh, top end range of motion. I would be much more concerned with having really good strict technique and with making sure that I was hitting that that bottom part. And, and lastly, what I wanna say is, because it's so easy to standardize technique for chest pressing, and because it's, <laughs> I was gonna say it's difficult to cheat, people find a way it, it, to cheat anyway with, you know, they have sex with the air hip thrust in the in the bench press. I'll put it this way, cheating in, the, in, in bicep curls is like you have to try not to cheat, right? Cheating in the chest press, you have to try to cheat. So it's more mm -hmm. difficult, it's more counterintuitive because you can standardize your technique so well with uh, chest pressing and because cheating is at least you have to go out of your way to do it um slowly just increasing the amount of load you lift over time through a standardized range of motion seems to work wonders for the chest whereas in you know in the biceps for example bicep curls there's a there's a very obvious trade-off between valuing load on the bar and valuing the mind muscle connection and the pristine nature of the technique. Like at some point you're like, man, anytime I go above 95 pounds on the barbell curl, I know I'm curling nominally, I know what's happening. I just don't think the right muscles are contributing to it. Whereas with chest pressing, I think as you put more load on the bar, as you progress five pounds here, two and a half pounds here, a rep here and there over the weeks, I think it's such a great situation for progressive overload because that there's a sense in which actually as you get closer to failure and as the weight gets heavier, it actually pushes you into that ideal position even more. It's one of those situations where if you lose your technique on a curl, you'll get an extra rep. If you lose your technique on a press, you're not gonna get any reps at all. And it is rewards staying in that groove, which is really awesome because then it can simplify the process. And once you learn the technique and learn how to connect with your chest, you can just think about like, hey, listen, just go and get these little PRs and it, it makes everything great. Cause you know, for like, nerds like you and I that are more analytical and mathematical, we just need numbers to plug in and go and we'd love to see objective progress in a logbook. And it's not always that simple with other muscles where at the very least, you know, there's layers to it. With chest training, once you learn that good technique, I think it's a pretty good sign to just go and get stronger and good things tend to happen. Yeah, that's a great thought about, you know, finding those muscle groups or those specific exercises where you can really get in that groove and really just push and you know go for progressive overload versus other movements where it like it just won't be that conducive and chest is it's always been one of those for me as well where you can really go heavy and still like feel like oh yeah i like crush that with my pecs for sure now i will say some things i don't know if this is politically incorrect i'm sure some people would uh, conceive it as such i think it's just uh, standard sports science i have noticed that uh asian lifters tend to first of all just have great chest development genetics on average not all of us are that lucky but also they just tend to connect well with their chests and pressing comes easily to them uh whereas you know uh for other muscle groups that's not the case so uh it's an interesting side observation that that i've made a lot of the best bench pressers of all time are, are asian and it's just kind of it's neat to have a muscle that's like oh yeah like i can rely on this of course uh, some some asian person's gonna listen to this and look at their chest and be like god damn it i didn't even get that part fuck same thing with calves actually the, the freakiest calves of all time are unanimously asian people it's, it's kind of a trip to see i've seen like 120 pound asian girls walking on university of michigan's campus and i'm looking at their legs like what the fuck am i doing wrong with my life why do my calves look like that <laughs> Oh man, that's that's great. Just trying to get the cleavage up, man. <laughs> that's, <laughs> cleavage. that's your goal for chest no. training. Not not big packs. Cleavage. I want cleavage. Damn it. That's what I signed up for. When a girl comes up to you and is like, "Your chest is bigger than mine." <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, I will say, upper like packs on a girl look kind of cool. It's like it's a it's a cool look, you know. And I think a lot of girls don't train their chest much or at all um, because they kind of think like, "Well, I have boobs; it doesn't matter." But it's no, definitely totally a different should. look. Mm -hmm. Well, absolutely. I think I think they should. That reminds me of a funny story. I remember being in med school, and there were these like two little Asian girls who they were just like nerds. They just studied all the time. But I remember once them they came up to me and they were like. Bill, like we want you to train us in the gym. We want bigger pectoralis major and gluteus maximus. <laughs> Interesting like, choices. I love how, you know, the gains are universal. Yes. Yeah. Did you agree <laughs> or were you like, get out of here? That costs money. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I was like, you know, check out my YouTube channel. <laughs> I, don't think that, I don't think it was born. What a baller response. <laughs> but yeah, anyways, good stuff. And yeah, moving on to the back, I think this will be a really cool one for people to take away some value. So, okay, there's so much to say about the back. I'm going to try to to maintain some degree of conciseness. Um, the back, as far as I can conceive of it, is composed of, we can at least give it sort of two mega regions. One is the part of the back that, so the erector spinae that run from your ass all the way up to your traps, essentially. And that complex of erectors, rhomboids, lower middle upper traps, upper traps, forget I said that, lower middle traps, because the upper traps get so much work from delt stuff and shrugs and stuff, you don't need to worry about that. Cool. But erector spinae, middle traps, sorry, lower traps, middle traps, rhomboids, um, and a few of the smaller muscles there that control scapular movement, they are often sort of described as the thickness component of the back, which isn't so wrong. It's colloquially pretty decent. And then the other part of the back are the teres major, teres minor, and latissimus dorsi, which are sort of the width part of the back. And yes, lats can contribute to thickness and all that, but generally we conceive of, of the back and at least recognize that are those sort of two functional regions. The first region kind of does two functions, but it's it's two functions that are so linked together, it's difficult to do one versus uh, one or the other. That first region uh, extends your spine and also retracts your scapulae. So this kind of like being born movement, right? Mm. I think it's medically called erection. Huh? Huh? You like that? <laughs> no takers. All right. So, uh, you know, like basically like the something you would do and like if you started your deadlift with real shit technique, round it over, what you would do to stand up at the top, right? And that that's a big part of your back's function. And then with the other part of your back is mostly concerned with taking your elbows and pulling them backwards, be that horizontal or vertical pulling. I don't think it much matters. I think some combination of both is really good. So once we conceive of the back as having those two major functions, it's easy to understand that some exercises will bias one function, some will bias another function, some do a pretty good job of addressing both. But once we understand that, it can really clarify back training. One thing I'll say really quick, and, and this is something that just kills me when I see it, is when people conflate lat training and back training. Like, you, you know, there's so many more muscles in your back than just your lats. Mm -hmm. And some people use those terms reflexively, and it's just not true at all. So they'll be super ultra obsessed with how do I get maximum lat activation? And they'll say things like rows are inferior to vertical pulling for the back. And it's like, no, 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 no. They are for the lats, but not for the back. The back has a lot going on and something just pull-ups can't attend to. Uh, same page uh, for now, Bill. Should I continue? Do you have any follow-ups for that or clarification or anything? Yeah, no. I think, yeah, it's really good to set up the anatomy as you did. And... Super, super. So now that we know that, we sort of have a, a few different categories um, of, of back uh, training to work with, back exercises. Maybe like we can conceive of sort of four categories. Category one is back movements that greatly prioritize spinal extension. So uh, I have an exercise that I invented, even though I hate, I'm not taking credit for that shit, I didn't invent shit. This is the stupid modification to regular exercise called the flexion row. And that's basically when you roll barbell into your chest, but you start with a, with a notably flexed spine. And as you row into your tummy, it's a standing bent row, you arch your back and retract your scapulae. And at the bottom, you protract your scapulae around your back. Those, the flexion row, um, the deadlift, I must say, uh, and a few other movements, you can do a flexion row uh, positioned on a chest supported bench or with any uh, rowing machine that greatly prioritizes hitting the spinal erectors and the lower traps and the middle traps and some of the scapular attraction musculature. So that's one category of movement that you can do, but you have to understand that it doesn't train the lats and the teres major and minor hardly at all. 
so a very, very small amount. So it's not going to get you a lot of width. It's not going to get you a ton of overall back size. But if you're interested in bringing up that thickness part of your back, especially that low to mid, you'll see someone from the side and the erectors poke out. And you're like, holy shit, what the hell is that? And, you know, the side poses and body building. And you're like, that guy's thick as fuck. Put him in the middle of the lineup. Like, that's the kind of shit that that gets you. And it's not something that you can do with pull-ups. You can do a trillion pull-ups, vertical pulls, whatever. Your back will look cool, but that density and thickness from behind just, just won't do you any justice. Mm. Second type of back exercise is general a general row. But in, in the, this general row, we make sure to essentially stabilize our lower spine such that it is not a limiting factor because that we know that muscles are almost always stronger in an isometric state than they are in a dynamic state. So if you freeze your erectors, you essentially get a nice uh, block going, uh, a nice frame in your lower back and maybe keep it a little bit arched for safety and stability. And then all of a sudden, what you're doing is rowing with protracted or retracted scapulae, but there's no movement uh, in the spine or not nearly as much. That trains your lats to a significant extent, your tears major to a significant extent. It also trains the upper back musculature of the lower traps and mid traps and, and rhomboids and stuff like that super, super well. It doesn't train your uh, spinal erectors much or as much because, well, you don't train muscles statically. Isometric training has been proven in the research to just not be as hypertrophic for a variety of reasons. Mm. So that's the second class of exercise and rolling is important. I will say if you are in a limited uh, time frame or if you just want a great overall back stimulus, kind of nothing really beats rowing uh, because it takes care of kind of, left the entire back, right? Mm. The third kind of lat, or sorry, lat, I did it myself. The third kind of back exercise that I can conceive of is generally uh, vertical pulling, uh, pull-ups, assisted pull-ups, pull-downs, and that is the compound way to engage the mostly lats and tears major. It absolutely engages other muscles as well, but that those are the muscles that are being prioritized. Great choice. That's what develops more of your back width for you as opposed to thickness. And a great feature of that kind of uh, situation is because it is not uh, pull-ups and pull-downs and assisted pull-ups of all kinds, essentially almost all vertical pulling, it doesn't compress the spine. And it seems that there's a special kind of fatigue called axial fatigue, which when you compress the spine and you have to maintain spinal position under load, which occurs with bent over rows, deadlifts of every kind, of course, squats and presses and everything else when you're standing up, that seems to sap the living shit out of you, for lack of a better term, in a very, very special way. Mm -hmm. Like We all know this. Deadlifts fatigue you in a way that's difficult to describe. And you're like, I don't know, man. Something, you know, something different about them. And when you're tired, you go to the leg press instead of to the squat. And there's some of that reason is because the axial fatigue is really nasty. The great thing about vertical pulling, it doesn't really contribute to axial fatigue. And we all know from experience, and if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't had this experience yet, get ready because you will. Vertical pulling is just not very systemically fatiguing because of that small axial contribution. So you can do like five sets of pull-ups and someone's like, pretty tough, huh? And you're like, eh, I feel a great pump. It's amazing. But the stimulus to fatigue ratio is really, really good because there's essentially no axial fatigue. So that's really good. And then the last category of back exercise is what I would just call isolated lat exercise or lat slash terrors major. And that's when you're like lat prayers and things like that. Uh, you know, Kasim has his like one arm um, overhead dildo thing that you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm kidding at, at, at kidding at Kasim's. Uh, but uh, you know, and that's a great movement uh, to really isolate the sort of lower uh, lats there. That if you can't connect with it, it's good. And there's all kinds of ways to do those movements. They're not overall back builders, but they are a great way to add some lat volume to your program if you are have a generally overall very thick back, well-developed, but you're looking for more width and more pop in your front double. You want more of this shit coming out, then at a very low fatigue expense, those exercises tend to be really good. So I could go on about back for forever, but what I will say is if you use a full range of motion, if you use a lot of overhead work, really stretching the lats at the top. If in the bent over row, you go through a crazy ROM, really reading your scapulates uh, under a slow, a slow eccentric control, or at least an eccentric control, not just dropping the rows, mm. letting the eccentric control do its work, really let your scapulae be protracted by the load, really retract the fuck out of your scapulae, lifting your chest as you row. Those kinds of details, uh, paying attention to quality, can magnify your back training like crazy. And I will say, I used to have no mind-muscle connection to my back at all. 
I just did the movements verbatim. And then over time, I got so connected to it that for me, back training, like I could be half dead and still get a great back workout because of the technical qualities I've developed over time. I can connect with my back like that and just, just get in there and just, it's that full ROM, eccentric control, letting the scapulae move freely, letting the super range of motion go, that kind of stuff pays crazy dividends. The thing I hate most in this world, maybe not most, but it's up there, is when folks will do pull-ups and they'll pull up to just where more or less their forehead's at the bar and they'll come down to where they still have like 15 degrees of elbow flexion and they'll be like, yeah, man, I just don't feel pull-ups on my lats. Get the fuck out of here all the way to a dead hang and after the dead hang and you can see jared feather doing this in some of our training videos you can even elevate the scapulae extra to stretch the shit out all those muscles and then all the way up ideally chin to bar but if you're strong enough touch the bar and pull-ups to your clavicles if you're really strong this is quite rare usually you have to be light to do it try to touch the bar to your sternum if someone's strong enough to do very good technique sternum pull-ups it's the stimulus to fatigue ratio on those for the back, specifically for the lats and tears major, is out of this world. And it's just all good things. I can say a lot more, but I'll shut the hell up so we don't go over on time. Yeah, no, those are, that's a really good little dissection of back training. And I think, I yeah, I think back training is one of the like least well-trained muscle groups and also like the most difficult to master, like out of probably of all of them. and took me a really long time to figure out how to even just connect with them. And, you know, that point where you can just hold your arm at your side and like flex your lat on command mm -hmm. that that took a long time to figure out. And it was actually really cool hearing your breakdown of the exercises. I'm curious actually about your, of uh, your reflection, uh, your reflection extension row. Mm -hmm. I remember hearing something about this, like a while back from some of the powerlifting guys talking about, the like a synergistic effect between you know the flexion extension of your spine in conjunction with that sort of retraction rowing movement what is your reasoning for combining those in the same movement i think that if you try to do loaded flexion and extension in a row but you're not paying attention to what the scapulae are doing you may find it hard to both know that you're in full flexion and know that you're being stretched because at the bottom of a flexed position if you protract your scapulae it stretches your lower back even more and stretch under load of course provides hypertrophy so it stretches the living crap out of your spinal erectors at the top if you arch and retract your scapulae that arch and retraction happens naturally as a human movement. I actually think it's called the, um, there's a, a subcategory of medicine. I think it's like emergency or essentially like military medicine, where if someone is like, receives a significant amount of brain damage, they go into what they think it's called like extensor reflex, where they just go oh, yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah. And the scapulae retract and everything goes like this because these are natural movement patterns with a lot of the same crossover for for general neural firing and there's also the flexion the flexion or flexor reflex which i believe if you get that people are like your <laughs> large part of your brain is never turning on again yeah that's why if you're like this after a car accident they're like yep that's it he's gone so i don't know if that's not you know, yeah yeah you can be yeah, yeah 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 it's like bad news <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah so uh because those muscles tend to work synergistically together it's very good to combine them because they reinforce each other and they make the movement click for lack of a better term. It's you're able to hit those positions so well. For example, if I told you, listen, I want you to arch your back at the top of the row while simultaneously protracting your scapulae, you'd be like, what? <laughs> Wait, hold on, uh, let me try it. And then it would just be, you'd be thinking so hard about it, your just central neural drive would have to drop because your cognitive bandwidth would increase. Ideally, one exercises that are so clickable, so simple to perform, cognitive bandwidth goes into ape mode, <laughs> and then your fucking primate rage can take care of the rest <laughs> of it, and you can do the rest, right? Anytime a, a movement makes sense from you from a from a movement perspective it's better than if it requires like 18 trillion you know neural connections for you to even conceptualize what's going on so i think that's one of the big reasons why protracting and retracting a scapulae works so well 
with uh, with the whole movement of the flexion and extension of the spine, at, at least in my experience. Yeah, I think we should call that the primate rage row. <laughs> primate rage rows, you heard it here first, folks. That's, I'm sticking to that. All right, yeah, that was awesome. And yeah, maybe we should probably move on to the shoulders, the delts. Yes, okay, so I have some stuff to say about the delts. Mm. Uh, <laughs> This is, this is going to be an interesting take. Hot take Tuesdays. or What's today? Wednesday, Tuesday. <laughs> it's a good day. It's a good day. All right. So it's kind of common knowledge in many bodybuilding circles, at least today, in the thinking bodybuilding circles, that front delt work is either something you don't need to do at all or you need to do a very small amount of because pressing takes care of uh, front delts, which I believe is largely true. What I have come to believe over the course of recently, the last three or four years of my bodybuilding career, is that that is also largely true for properly executed back training and rear delts. I have gone months and months and months without focusing on my rear delts, without doing a single isolation exercise, and my rear delts are just the biggest they've ever been. They just continue to grow. And then it's like, well, well, of course that makes sense, right? Like the rear delts function in back training is in many ways almost identical to the front delts function in chest training. You know, obviating the obvious, like elbows don't lock out when you go back that way. It'd be kind of sweet if your elbows had a locking mechanism back here, or you just lock out at the top of a row. But um, that's the situation there. So what I would say is first point, the vast majority of shoulder training needs to be concerned with the side delts. Um, because the rear delts and front delts largely take care of themselves. Now, if you want to do or need to do some rear delt, front delt work, a very small amount, maybe two to four sets per session, once or twice per week, I think can really hook most people up with all the front and rear delt volume that they need. And that, that training is not, not very difficult to do. Another problem with really trying to target the rear delts is that every rear delt exercise, your body actually to the last point of some movements are synergistic by nature, Every single rear delt movement turns into a row. Every single, like so hard to just do this and move your delts back versus protracting and retracting. And, and especially as the load increases and especially as you near failure, it's real tough to isolate that muscle. A lot of people have really nasty mind muscle connection problems with the rear delt. We're like, how'd that feel? You're like, I don't know, man. I feel like my erectors and rhomboids a lot. I feel my mid traps a lot. Rear delts, sure, I kind of feel it. So what I will say is this, if you're having trouble targeting your front delts, any kind of vertical overhead presses work, any kind of uh, front raises where you're keeping a thumbs up sort of grip, so take dumbbells and go all the way here and go all the way like this with a front raise, that should take care of your front delts just fine. And there's so many front raise variations that you could do them until the cows come home. If you really want to hit your front delt a lot, what I would do is either dumbbell or cable variations where there's a lot of tension at the stretch. So if you move your arm really far behind the plane of your body, easy to do with cables, also super easy to do with dumbbells if you just do it on a high incline bench, right? Just do the front raises like that. Man, that hits your front delts like something else. And if you keep that thumbs up grip and keep your arms close to your body, your pecs don't really do a lot of work in that angle anyway. So you're good to go. So that's, that's for front delt work. For rear delt work, I'd say the real prized possession and real delt work, which is also why the rear delt machine fly thing, you know, the reverse rear delt fly pack deck bullshit, I think is slightly suboptimal because like every other muscle or seemingly every other muscle, the rear delts get trained really well at, at a stretch. So what I'd say is cross body movement, which is usually better done with a cable than anything else, is really awesome for the rear delts, which means if you can do a double cross, like grab here, grab here and do one of these, that's great. But single cross is oftentimes even better. So, so, you know, a great rear delt movement is to take, you know, a cable here in your hand across your body. You can, I don't, it doesn't really matter what the elbow does. You can make it straight or you can bend it, whatever's comfier, but you bring the shit across, peak contract, slow eccentric all the way across, deep stretch, and then back. Movements like that, I think are really, really awesome for the rear delts. For the side delts, movements which stretch them are really prized. So if you can do the same cable motion except come lower down in your body and then come up, that tends to go really well. The problem with the side delts is anatomically, they're just not positioned to receive a huge uh, stretch under load. Mm. You'd have to like move through your rib cage 
which maybe if you were like teleporting X-Men, you could do <laughs> teleport into your own ribcage. Oh shit, I just, your, your humorous snaps through your heart. Oh, turn that off at the wrong time. So uh, have you, uh, Bill, have you seen the, do you watch The Boys on Amazon by any chance? The the superhero movie or car, uh, series? Oh no, I haven't. Yeah, I don't want to have too many spoilers. One guy gets teleportation powers, but they don't include his clothes. So as soon as he teleports into somewhere, he's naked. He's like, ah, shit. <laughs> so that'd be a similar situation. So because of that uh, difficulty in getting a stretch under load, it is possible to do a little bit with uh, the, the, the side delts. One variation that works well is you grab cables behind your back. So you're sort of, it's like you're pulling stuff out of your butt. You're doing one of these. Uh, that tends to work pretty well. But honestly, I'm a big fan of just good old fashioned lateral raises. Cable, they're great with dumbbells. You can do them to just above parallel and come down. You can do them to just above parallel hold for a second for that awesome mind muscle and come down. You can do the super ROM laterals that we do at RP, which is where you come all the way up and back down. That does at the top tend to involve front delts considerably, but there's some kind of gnarly synergy there that goes on. Well, because your delt is designed to go over your head, like that's literally one of the functions of the movement per primate anatomy and physiology. Um, it, 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 it just, yeah, man. That stimulus to fatigue ratio of taking your your uh, laterals to above, significantly above parallel, is something magical there. One of the things I think that's magical is you end up going through, you know, this is the hardest part of delt training right here, side delts, is keeping your arms level with the ground. And if you can go above and then slowly centric through that hard part, it messes you up like something real special. Whereas if you just barely get to it and then come down, it just doesn't seem to be as much of a stimulative movement. So I'm a big fan of large range of motion, lateral raises of all kinds, cables, different angles, and controlling that eccentric is huge. Now let's rewind that quick and think about what do we usually see people doing with side delts at the gym? And the answer is pure, unmitigated momentum generating fuckery, for lack of a better term. I mean, you take the 70s and you do some kind of bullshit like that, and you're like, yeah, man, big delts, and it just, your shoulders hurt, and your traps are pumped, and nothing else happens. For me, delt training is a, a real act of precision on the concentric, and then a slow, painful descent on the eccentric. And f as far as I'm concerned, that has worked incredibly well for my delt training. Yeah, that's great. I'm I'm super stoked that, you know, you we have the same views on kind of rear delt isolation training. And it's funny how in the fitness industry, like front delt training has become, you know, like morally like demonized, whereas, <laughs> whereas, whereas rear delt training is like on this moral high standard yes. where it's funny. I feel like it's the biggest thing I fight in my YouTube comments is people just asking me like, oh, where's your rear delt training? Where I, I like when you look at all my programs there, there's lots of side delt work and not very much isolation front or rear delt training. And yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, you would you really get a lot of stimulus from pulling movements. And if you do have the time, then maybe you should think about adding some more rows like if you haven't, because I think a lot of people haven't met, even maxed out their back volume yet. Um, yes. And also face pulls, cable face pulls, barbell, dumbbell face pulls are great for the rear delts, but they also hit your traps so well and they hit some of the forearm flexors. To me, there's something demoralizing about just doing rear delt work where it's like, <laughs> God damn it, I've been training for 30 minutes and the muscles, the thickness of my thumb, the fuck am I doing with my life? And, and, and I think you said it really well, if you have the time, um, then, then maybe you should you can consider throwing in some stuff there. But it just it breaks my heart when people aren't even competitive bodybuilders, and I suspect many of your viewers are not. And they, they've got you know they got these aspirations to get more jacked, which are great, and they're well on their way. And then they're pissing away minutes and minutes and minutes every week, hours every month, training their rear delts, and just the the return on investment there. It's just not clear to me. It's like people who come into the gym to train delts and their first three movements are front delt exercises. Jesus, what are you doing? You already took care of that with chest training. And another thing is this, the side delts can take a shitload of volume, not mm -hmm. coincidentally because they're leveraged so poorly to experience damage under length and condition that you need 10 and 15 sets sometimes per workout to really do justice to them, you know, five, 10, 15 sets. You're not, it's not, it's not hamstrings. You're not going to come in and do two sets 
of stiff-legged deadlifts, uh, you know, for you can do two sets of stiff-legged deadlifts properly for hamstrings and be sore for a week. You're not going to do two sets of laterals and get big delts. You got to pound them shits because the quality tends to degrade after 10 or more sets. Another thing I have to say, and I know we're not covering this because it's exercise specific, but side delts benefit from high frequency, man. Two, mm -hmm. three, four times a week. You can get big pecs training your pecs once a week. You can definitely get big quads training quads once a week because their um, SFR curves, uh, sorry, SFR, good God. Um, they're the, 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 the basically the uh, um, uh, length of the muscle growth, the MPS curve, for quads is a long, a long time. It's just so much has to happen. There's so much muscle volume that that you're you're actually disturbing and disrupting and healing and immune elements infiltrate and then they leave. With side delts, gee whiz, you know, two days later someone could be like, side delt workout messed you up, right? And you're like, I get, oh yeah, yeah, I trained side delts. I didn't even remember. I they're completely healed. So if generally the my my experience is like if a muscle is completely healed it's time to train it again and you're missing an opportunity to get bigger. So with side delts, pound that volume five to 10, even sometimes more sets per workout and multiple workouts per week, which is, uh, I, I promise I'm making a point here because side delts are visually such a big deal breaker. I mean, fuck, mm -hmm. if you have big side delts, you take over the world. And, and because they require so much work, the question of in my shoulder training as a concept, not necessarily saying shoulder training should be one day, how much room is left over as an opportunity cost for front delts and rear delts? And I submit that it's just not much room at all. Like it's so, there's so much work to be done training side delts. You should be focused mostly on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's huge. I love what you said about, you know, got a good pair of side delts could take over the world. Seriously, it's it, it's one of those muscles that makes such a big visual impact. And my case in point is Jared Feather. Google Jared Feather's physique. You're like, uh, Jared is 10 times the bodybuilder I'll ever be. I have a bigger back than Jared does. Uh, I have at least similar size pecs, probably bigger pecs than Jared. My traps are way bigger than Jared's. My arms are similar in size to Jared's. On a 5'6 frame, he's like 5'11". So why the fuck does Jared look unbelievable and I look like a Hogwarts character or some shit like that. Well, part of that is I have a big blocky waist and he does not. But another part is that his side delts are from, I don't know where the Mars or some shit like that. They're just so big. He looks like a, like a, like an action figure. Yeah. And like there's no, I've never seen anyone where I was like, your side delts are too big. And if you brought those down, you'd have a better package on stage. Bill, have you ever seen that on a bodybuilding stage? Like side delts are too big. Exactly. Like I, th I personally think that side delts, are the most aesthetically you know um like momentous muscles and like in the fact that they have the biggest impact to change your physique because they are ultimately the widest point like in your frame like if you have if you have um you know if you're lean side delts are the only way to actually horizontally make yourself wider yes yes and while upper outer lats can add to that equation I have enormous upper outer lats and I still missing something because my side delts could be bigger. That front, it's the first pose judges see too, because you know, we're both competitive bodybuilders or something. You come out, hit that front relaxed, do a big ass cap delts. It, the, one of the funniest things I'll ever see is when Jared Feather comes out in a lineup and I got to see him win his pro card doing this. When he won, he won his class for his pro card um at usa's or sorry at nationals he came out and they accidentally i don't know why they accidentally put him on some stage did you hear that yeah uh there's a thunderstorm apparently right okay. over my house i thought that was a swat team coming for you yeah you know 50 50 <laughs> chance i'm <laughs> starting deleting my files on my computer uh <laughs> protocol um jared walked out at nationals and hit that front relaxed and it was just lights out because you were like what the fuck is going on? He looks three times wider than everybody. That is a testament to side delts. And until and unless you have big ass side delts, it pays to just keep getting bigger. Yeah, good good stuff, wisdom for sure. So yeah, keep in mind the time, we should probably keep going here. So maybe going on to arms for the gun show. Uh, biceps, Mike? <laughs> biceps, man, I'm the wrong guy to ask about biceps or maybe the right guy because they're genetically shit for me and I have so much trouble connecting with them. I'll say this, first of all, good technique pays huge dividends. 
people swing and do all this kind of crap, and there's no room for that in a proper program. Secondly, variation is critical for biceps because like the delts, they can take a huge pounding and it's good to train them three or four times or two, two to four times per week, definitely not once a week. People tell me I wanna bring up my bicep, Oh my God, dude. Oh my God. Real quick. I'm going to rant. I'm going to keep this rant really short because we're, we're not saying <laughs> time. But so t- TikTok is poison as far as I can tell. I'm kidding, but it is funny to joke because there's a lot of truth in that. And I remember uh, we just put out a video series on TikTok. We're just like splice out YouTube and throw it on, on my TikTok. I have somebody helping me manage TikTok because I don't want it in it. There's nothing Christian about that platform. But uh, I'm on TikTok and we're talking about like how to train your triceps better and half the comments are like, because I was like saying, you know, if you're training your triceps, you might, or your biceps actually, you might want to put them, if you do a bicep and back day or tricep and chest day, if you really want big arms, you have to make the trade off to train your triceps before chest. And yes, you will miss out on some chest gains, but because you train triceps first as a priority, they're going to get bigger. So many people, maybe like 50% of the commentators were like, oh man, arm day, just do an arm day, arm day. I'm like, you stupid motherfuckers. Arm day is bullshit because one day of the week is not enough for your arms, not even close, not even by a mile. Bill, have you ever had your biceps be consistently sore for five or six days? No. Has anybody? So at the end of the day, arms, biceps, you gotta train frequently, which means you'll need a variety of movements. Point one. Point two, I have found that going heavy in sets of, you know, five to eight reps for most people just doesn't do anything for the bicep, not anything at all. It does very small amount for the biceps relative to higher rep sets. Another thing uh, that I found works super well is myo reps. Because the biceps take such a fucking beating, you can just continue to crush them. The systemic fatigue for bicep training just isn't that high because they're not very big and you don't lift a lot of weight with it. So Mm -hmm. one thing I like to do, so uh, last point of biceps, is if you can get them into a stretch position, you're starting to to win a little bit. So cable curls where it's like free motion cable handles and you go behind your body, that tends to work really well. I wouldn't worry about the the contraction too much. Another main exercise is incline uh, dumbbell curls where you sit on an incline like this and you curl up and you essentially control the way down and get that deep stretch. What I like to do is a myo rep incline bicep curls. It works pretty well. So I take dumbbells, I do a set of like 15. I put them down, rest a normal amount of time. Then I try to get 15 reps on every set after that for three or four sets. I can't because I'm too tired. I'll get to 12 on the second set. I'll put the dumbbells down on my quads, rest for three or four seconds and go again to get another three reps nasty the next set i'll only get like nine and then i'll have to do another three and another three to make up for it that kind of taking the biceps close to failure very often in any given set and in any given exercise and thus in any given workout seems to work super super well another thing is find implements that allow you to train your biceps without irritating your wrists your shoulders or your elbows i used to be leveraged really well to do barbell curls and I loved them, but the bigger I've gotten, the more, you know, like the guys tend to kind of sit out like this. I can't bring my fucking elbows in anymore. So goddamn much muscle everywhere that barbell curls just really wreck the shit of either my elbows or my wrists or my shoulders. I just have to pick which one I'm going to wreck. So a lot of times you want to find bicep training implements that are very kind on your connective tissues and then just rock out with Maya reps, crazy volume, uh, lots of approaches to failure. Biceps are one of those muscles that if you seem to respond better to close to failure training, you don't pay as big of a fatigue cost. So instead of doing three or four RIR, one or two RIR seems to work pretty well. And, and that's kind of what I found to work best for biceps. If you have great bicep genetics, none of this applies to you because just traditional three by 10 training will blow up your biceps. But then you don't need to be listening to this part of the podcast anyway, because fuck you and your big ass biceps. <laughs> Calling me jealous. <laughs> yeah, no, i I really like what you said about, I think with some of these smaller muscle groups, you can really start taking advantage of these more, you know, like intensity type techniques like my reps and, and all that, especially since you don't accumulate that much systemic fatigue from training them. Yeah. I mean, you're not crushed after a bicep workout. Your biceps are crushed, hopefully, but the rest of you is fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then triceps. Triceps. I have a few things to say that are notable. 
there, number one, there is a big push, and has been for a while, of preferentially using overhead movements for triceps because they uh, stretch the triceps and thus put them in a mechanical advantage to, to be stimulated with, with growth. I think that's a good idea, but I will say this. You actually train the long, so that's, it also preferentially trains the long head of your triceps. Couple things there. One is the long head is actually trained quite well. Anytime you do any kind of rows or any kind of you do any kind of pull-ups, pull-downs, and even the uh, lat prayers, that trains the shit out of the long head of the triceps. And in my experience, is actually quite hypertrophic. So because your pulling movements train the long head so well, I think that you can do a lot of your tricep training either in pushing down or pushing away from your face, skull crusher style, et cetera, and not have to go overhead much. If you do go overhead, it's often really, really great. I would just say be a little bit careful because if you do a lot of overhead pulling, vertical pulling work, and a lot of behind the neck tricep work, which is awesome, you can get into a situation where you could acutely overreach the long head of your triceps. And I've done that before, and it was just a nagging injury that bothered me for years. And I couldn't figure it out until I realized, wait a minute, I'm actually on back training hitting this muscle quite, quite robustly. So there is that to be said. Another thing. There is an obsession with the long head of the tricep that I'll never fucking understand as long as I live. I think it's this thing where people, that's the only head of the tricep they know how to name. They don't know what the other two heads are called. And it's some, it's, it's almost like this like little insider thing that when you graduate from knowing nothing about lifting to knowing anything, it's the Dunning-Kruger of lifting. <laughs> <laughs> like, what about the long head? Anytime I say anything about triceps, somebody inevitably drops into the comments. And by somebody, I mean hundreds of people. And they go, what about the long head, Dr. Mike? I'm like, God damn it, is that the only thing you know? <laughs> you know, like that's like learning about Picasso and then walking around like art museums in Paris and be like, oh, I wonder if this is Picasso. <laughs> like, shut up, that's all I get out of here. Like, real artists and art critics are here, go away. So there's this obsession with the long head. And like, it's, it's nice, like, it's nice. The back of your tricep, it looks cool, but it's also not the cool looking middle horseshoe part. It's literally not. So, you know, you gotta train the whole tricep. So overhead work is great. Pushdowns are great. Skull crushers are great. Jam presses are great. Dips are great. A, a couple of dips. One, eccentric control is essential. The part in the pushdowns where you control slowly and then come back down is amazing. Two, I honestly think that peak contraction for triceps is as overrated as it is for almost everything else, chest included. People um, they say they love to work with the rope extension because it gives them a great peak contraction. And my question is always like, Yes, but the rope extension doesn't get you a real good stretch at the top. So what's the trade-off? Like I've done a ton of rope extensions and I didn't really got much out of it. But if I do skull crushers where I'm like stretching and this part of the tricep here and a properly done skull crusher feels like you're gonna, it's just gonna fucking explode out of your arm. Amazing. There's also some research to suggest and some evidence that if you feel a lot of tension here, you actually can preferentially hypertrophy the distal end of your tricep versus the proximal end. Mm. I don't know about you, but distal triceps hypertrophy, I'll say it, fuck it, we're being racial today, it gives you the black guy tricep look. You know what I'm talking about? With a shift hanging off the little Dexter Jackson in his prime. Look at his triceps, you're like, what the, what the fuck is that? How the hell? And you're, like, I know his arms are big, but his triceps have that lower hang. It's just magical. And if you have triceps that are mostly bunched in to your rear delt, it's kind of like, it kind of looks blocky and like your arm looks big, but it's kind of like, oh, I don't know. And then when you're hitting the back poses and people can see your tricep, that swoop just isn't there. So what I would say is focus, try at least for a while, focusing on movements in which you feel a shitload of tension right here close to the elbow, skull crushers, dips with your chest super upright and getting really, really low with the dip and feeling that nasty tension. See, forget about the long head for a while. Focus on getting stronger over time with good eccentric control. Keep those elbows in on skull crushers. And I think a lot of good stuff happens. Also, triceps are maybe the most easy muscle in the body to do agonist supersets with. So if you really have trouble with tricep training, push downs for a set of 20 or something. And a lot of times it just feels, it feels, yeah, I'm getting something out of it, but mm, feels kind of warmed up. Immediately drop in and do close grip pushups with a four range of motion for a set of how many you can. If you're really a baller, if you really get strong, skull crushers or push downs for a set of whatever, 10 to 20, and then jump on and do free, free dips. Holy God. 
you may be able to do anything like some, something like five to 10 dips, but every single dip is like a blowtorch directly on your tricep. And that's a really, really awesome thing. So if you really have trouble stimulating the shit out of your triceps, using the superset situation with triceps is a real good thing. Another thing, there, there is a, a category of movement in which if you do some tricep stuff before and then you jump right over and you do some presses, if the press has a situation in which there's a low number of degrees of freedom, like it's a machine press, technically speaking, if your triceps were so completely, uh, you know, chemically anesthetized and they weren't even active, you could just use your pecs because just pulling the humerus forward automatically extends the elbow if that position on the machine can't move out or in, right? It's just, it's just, just the pec. Your body knows this in a certain extent, and when your triceps are really, really tired, it will use your pecs preferentially, which has been confirmed by the research. So if we have people do tricep training and then jump on to the bench press, they actually get a really, really great pec activation because your body's like, holy shit, our triceps are almost dead. Fuck it, fellas, turn the pecs up so we can get this movement going. That works until you do dumbbell presses. If you do tricep pushdowns and then get on and do flat or inclined dumbbell press, it's actually impossible to just use your pecs because if you just use your pecs, this is what would happen. No tricep extension. Watch. You go like this. <laughs> That's yeah. it. You just drop the dumbbells. So in order for you to be able to extend simultaneously, all your pecs do is provide enough oomph for your triceps to have to activate. Pushdowns or skull crushers supersetted with dumbbell presses. Oh my God. You're going to get to a point at rep five where you're like, holy shit. This is all tricep and it's really, really awesome. Another thing is because the triceps are leveraged really well to take eccentric load, especially at a stretch, yes, you can conserve a lot of time and systemic effort by doing these supersets, but they're rarely required because the triceps just aren't that hard to train. They're kind of like, and this is not by accident because structurally they're similar, they're kind of like the quads. If someone says, man, I'm really have time, hard time hitting my quads, please get you on the leg press, a hack squat, get you doing the shit properly and all of a sudden, Boom, there we go. Last thing, last thing, super quick. If you're in a position where you're asking yourself, where do I skull crush to? The answer to that question is as long as your shoulders and elbows are okay, anything is the correct answer. It's just variation. I get this question all the time. Should I do a JM press that stops at my neck? Should I do a modified skull crusher that actually touches my throat? If you're flexible enough, it's actually a super great movement. It's holy shit, it stretches the fucker. Have a spotter or don't use the Smith machine because you're going to die. I actually had one guy, um, I was doing, I forget what the conversation was about in YouTube. This uh, it was uh, this uh, situation was where like a skull crusher was being done to touch the throat. And one guy's like, better do that with a Smith machine to stay safe. And I was like, no, because you could just die. There's no way to get out of it. Like, at least with a barbell, you could just do this with a Smith machine. It's a suicide machine at that point. So is, the, is this the right answer for touching on a skull crusher? Is this, is this, is this, is this, is that behind the head? And the answer is, as long as your elbows and shoulders are feeling okay, it doesn't matter. For me personally, I used to think skull crushers were only where you touched your forehead or you touched behind your neck. Mm. My elbows were so fucked up. I couldn't barely, like, barely brush my teeth. I stopped doing that. I started doing this when I was starting the skull crusher. Also, uh, pro tip, on a lot of tricep movements, removing your thumbs and doing a thumbless, what's in jujitsu called a monkey paw grip, is actually seems to work better for the elbows. It seems to not piss them off as much. What I would do here is instead of my first movement being back this way, my first movement was to bend my elbow towards my, my hips, bend this way, and then go down. No elbow pain, unreal tricep connection, unreal tricep stretch, all good things. Yeah. Wow. That was awesome. Great points. And yeah, what you were saying about modifying exercise selection in a way that spares your joints, I think is a really important tip for bodybuilders, especially as they progress where injuries become the limiting factor, like as you, as you get more advanced often. And I also liked what you were saying about skull crushers, not being just confined to this, you know, station over your chin or over your head where it's a lot with as with a lot of exercises there's somewhat of a continuum of, yes you know of movement selection where it's not just one movement it's a spectrum of movements and you can still get a lot of stimulus from different variations 100 it's like low bar versus high bar versus safety versus front squat it's a lot of right answers depending on the context and there's not necessarily like you know one way to do things um bill are we going to talk about traps or are we just going to be like fuck traps what do you think? yeah that'd be awesome if we could <laughs> touch on it for sure um so i'll say this if you're doing lots of stiff-legged deadlifts and deadlifts 
if you're doing lots of rows and if you're doing lots of side dealt work, like if you listened earlier on this podcast, you damn well should be, especially if you're doing very high range of motion, uh, side dealt work, man, your traps are in the same position as your front rear, uh, sorry, as your front and rear belts. They're almost cooked, if not completely cooked. Can you do some Y raises and stuff like that to hit your traps? Yes, but it's also front delt exercise. Can you do shrugs? Yes, but as many very astute nerdy lifters pointed out a long time ago, there's actually a bunch of other muscles that elevate the scapulae and, and the upper traps even are, are not is so dominant in, in scapular elevation as you may think. The, 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 the primary function of the upper traps is, is actually going from here to here, which you'd notice if you do proper side delts with a full range of motion, your traps get pumped like crazy. I was like, what the fuck am I? And, and a lot of people be like, oh man, you know, this is another common myth. Say, hey man, how do I get my traps out of my side belt training? And, and my usual joke response is like, but I Googled a picture of you and Tom Hardy didn't come up. So your traps aren't big enough. Shut the fuck up and take the trap training. It's like bodybuilders who are like, hey man, you know, my quad training's going great, but how do I minimize glute involvement? Why, your glutes too big? Are you Ronnie Coleman? Get out of here. There's no one's ever been penalized on stage for too big of glutes. Never yeah. seen that happen in my life. No, you can be penalized for excessive traps, but that's only if you have small side delts. And if the way you got your big traps is also getting big side delts, mm. it's not an issue, right? There's maybe one bodybuilder ever that had traps that were too big for the delts and his name is Johnny Jackson. Right. Do you know who that is, uh, Bill? Do you know who John Jackson is? But yeah. but his traps start like here or some <laughs> shit like that. This is nonsense, right? So can you do shrugs? Yes. They are of limited value. What I would say is this. First of all, make sure you're doing full range of motion. Really depress your scapulae at the top. Really contract and elevate them. At, uh, sorry, at the bottom. Really con uh, elevate them at the top. A one second pause and the squeeze pulling your shoulders back a little bit at the top is a big deal. Eccentric control. A lot of people will do shrugs and they'll do this kind of bullshit where it seems like they're just like riding on a bumpy road and the truck's doing this. Don't do shit like that. Another thing is, in my experience, light weights for higher reps, lots of mile reps, short rest, really cook your traps in a really good way. Putting 600 fucking pounds on a barbell, <laughs> it just doesn't grow your traps in my experience very much. And if it does, there's a massive systemic and axial fatigue price. Um, I know there's that gentleman, uh, was Alex something, it goes by Alpha Destiny on YouTube. He seems to be very convinced that, you know, heavy power shrugs and stuff are awesome. And I've got all the time in the world for considering that. It has not been my experience. It has not been the experience of the folks that I've worked with. So I think for some people, if you're really just, you have no more cards to play, that sort of, you know, uh, work can be good. I will say another really great way to train the traps, if you're really interested in just real trap training, is to do Olympic weightlifting derivatives. So there's a movement called a hang high pull, in which you start from a hang position with a barbell, you use your hips to jack the bar up, and then you bring the bar, a straight bar, up to just above your head, and then you eccentrically control it on the way down. De decent delt training, actually. It takes your traps through full ROM, and because the concentric is assisted by your triple extension of the hips, it's actually an eccentric accentuated overload training. Mm -hmm. And if you really need the last, you know, like the last bit of trap growth ever, that is a good way to go about things. And I would say it's a much better way to go about things than I would much rather see someone hang high pole with 115 pounds for sets of 15 than I would doing sets of three to five reps with 900 pounds, bending the fucking gym bar and the power rack. Get out of here, kid. You're not Andy Bolton. Fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was great. I think, I think a good takeaway I'm taking from this talk today is, you know, really thinking about the biomechanics of the movements and which exercises are like actually most you know, efficient for training that, that specific muscle. And sometimes it's not, you know, in alignment with our like, conventional wisdom as with traps were. So yeah, I think that was an awesome discussion, Mike. Rounded out some great muscle group training tips. And, you know, if this talk saved one person from dying in the, in the machine <laughs> trying to do a JM press, <laughs> this was all worth it. The last time, <laughs> Bill, the last time that I looked at this was years ago, but the highest category of exercise-related death was... Um, uh, oh, I don't even know if this is a term we use properly. It was essentially like um, 
idiopathic cardiac infarction uh, concomitant with just exercise. Like Bill's oh, okay. 50 like years old. And it's just like, yeah, just like 50 years old and he's gone on the treadmill and just has the big one and he dies. It's by far the most common way to die in exercise. But last I checked, one of the top ones was killing yourself by pinning yourself under a bench press in your basement and, and just dying, which is like super fucked up. And it's super fucked up because like, it's so preventable. Like, look, if you're, if the big heart attack is coming, look, that's just between you and the man upstairs, right? Shit happens. But if, if, folks, if you're listening at home, if you bench press by yourself in the basement, there's one easy tip for you not to die. Just don't put any collars on, on the bar. And if you get in trouble and you can't get it off you, just tilt to one side, the weights will fling off. I know it'll bust your drywall, but at least you won't die. Yeah. That's my message. That's what I'm sticking to. That's all I have for today. Thank you, everyone. That was a public service announcement for us from the, you know, <laughs> CDC. <laughs> yes. We got COVID. So, yeah. We got people dying in basements. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal. Exactly. So I know we got to run off mic. Anything to plug from, you know, your end? New developments? New developments are top secret. Um, I will say, if, if you guys listen to this podcast and you're super geeked about the shit I'm saying, but you have a bunch more questions, we have a Facebook community called Team Full Rom, and it's our Instagram page, just Team Full Rom, at Team Full Rom on Insta. Get on there, message the account, take care of payment, we'll add you. For 30 bucks a month, you get all the workouts, you get diet stuff, you get crazy discounts on tons of RP and Team Full Rom products. And you get access to the Facebook forum. We have like 600 people in there right now. And this awesome, super positive group where you can post all of your training videos, technique. Everyone claps back and tells you how to improve. We have one rule in the group. It's don't be a dick. And if you're a dick, you get one warning and they just tell you to kick you out permanently. So this is a place where you can feel like you can really get your technique analyzed. You can ask any and all questions, myself and Charlie and Jared, We'll do like a weekly live where I'll ask like Sunday generally, I'll post and be like live question, post them here, people post them. And Monday I'll do a Facebook live where I answer every single question in depth. Those videos are saved in the group forever. So you can access old videos. If you want a question answered, you put it in the group. And then Tuesday or Wednesday when you free up and you've got all your work done, you can log in and watch that part of your video in which your question is. It's real good stuff. So that's my plug is Team for Rom is great. And if you want to learn more, I'm on YouTube, Renaissance Periodization. We have a gazillion subscribers now. We're always putting out basically this type of shit, except I don't have a, a handsome young Asian doctor interviewing me. So I'm, I'm, I'm generally more sad. <laughs> yeah, I think the the Facebook group sounds awesome. I think that the 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 RP community is just such an uplifting group. I've like I've just noticed where it's really motivating, like seeing people posting about their their progress and their transformations and just sharing like sharing a lot of useful advice. So I would highly recommend. Thank you so much, man. And it is it's it's all the people. Like we don't take any credit for that, but we will say like we have a one tolerance policy for being a piece of shit. Because we all say mean stuff every now and again that we don't mean. So we go, hey, hey, don't do that. But if you're like a repeat offender, like and you think it's like the Reddit forums or something, and you call people this and that kind of name, you're out. Because like none of that stuff is productive. So if you want a positive community, come on over. I'll make fun of you and I'll get myself kicked out. Oof, that'd be bad. <laughs> Good stuff. So with that, I'll put some links in the description. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one -on -one online coaching. I also offer one-time custom hypertrophy programs tailored to your needs. So if you want to take your gains to the next level, DM me on Instagram and I'll let you know my rates. Make sure you follow the podcast and we'll see you next time.